This is the Best Friends Podcast, dedicated to sharing the people and programs that are ending the killing of cats and dogs in America's animal shelters. You'll hear from animal welfare leaders from across the movement who will share the innovative and collaborative work that are creating life-saving successes in communities of all sizes. It is Thursday, January 28th. My name is John Dunn. And this is episode 49, which means that next week is episode number 50. To mark that occasion, we'll be bringing the CEO of Best Friends, Julie Castle, back to the program. I recently went back and listened to episode number one. Super interesting to hear what we talked about back in April, all the way back in April, which was like 100 years ago. You know, that was a time when we knew very little about COVID, the pandemic, what it meant for our industry. Now we know a little bit. So it's going to be fun to catch up with her and see where things stand now and get her thoughts about the next few months. If you haven't listened to it, go check out that first episode. And if you have questions for Julie, email them to podcast at bestfriends.org about anything. Well, within reason, I suppose. But anything you can think of that you'd want to get Julie's take on, she's probably going to answer it. She's pretty open like that. Podcast at bestfriends.org. But we're getting an episode ahead. And the last thing we want to do is sleep on this week's, because I had a great conversation with Kristen Hassan. Kristen is the Maddie's Director of American Pets Alive, and she's shepherding through much of the work around the Human Animal Support Services Initiative that APA and others have been working on. Just quickly want to mention the Best Friends Conference. Kristen and I talk about it, actually. And, you know, the conference plays a really important role for all of us, so I'm very happy to be able to say that it will be held this year. Unsurprisingly, it will be virtual, but that's okay. It's still going to be amazing. The conference is, of course, geared towards people who work in the animal welfare and animal sheltering field, but it's also really valuable for those who are involved but aren't getting paid, like board members, volunteers, maybe you're a foster parent. But if you have any interest in saving lives and joining in the movement to reach the No-Kill 2025 goal, then I think you will find it valuable. Registration isn't open yet, but it will soon, and I will definitely let you know. But the reason I bring this up is that we are accepting proposals for speakers through February 3rd, so time is running out. Now, sessions at the conference are on topics from animal care, field services, fundraising, marketing, innovation, life-saving programs, shelter medicine, cats, large dogs, uh, coalitions. What else? Oh, advocacy, legislation. <laughs> Listen, if it's good stuff that will save lives and can help others, we want you to be able to share it at the conference. So get your proposal in now. Bestfriends.org slash podcast. Information about it, the link on episode 49's page, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Now on to our main event this week. There's been this realization across the country that we really need to take a hard look at animal sheltering and the relationship the community has with animal shelters. If the goal is to keep people and pets together and stop animals that don't need to go into the shelter from going into the shelter, then how can we do that in the best way? You'll hear Kristen reference the data they have on the reasons given for intake. They took the 70,000 intake records and made a super nifty word cloud. We've got the link to that on the website. You go check it out, bestfriends.org slash podcast. Kristen, I, I think off the top, I just want to say that, you know, here we are, uh, Best Friends Podcast, episode 49, and this is the first time that we're having Kristen Hassan as a guest. And for those that know you and your work, 
that might seem odd. <laughs> it's taken this long, but and this is listen. This is going to be a, a compliment and and may, an apology, I suppose, wrapped up in one. We have production meetings. We talk about upcoming episodes. We talk about topics, and, and as you can imagine, a never-ending list of topics. So, what are we doing, and who who's best to speak to them? Your name comes up over and over and over. Like, oh yeah, Kristen could do that. Yeah, yeah, Kristen. You know, Kristen would be good for that. And you know, we just haven't had you on. So, an apology, and hopefully, you're able to see that as a compliment. Ah, thanks. That's so nice. No, it's true. And I think it's sort of like that you're just an expert in so many things that we could have you as a guest on every episode talking about one thing or another. <laughs> but, you know, this topic of programs based on intake data, the the work you do at American Pets Alive, I want to hit all of that and let's just see where it takes us. That sounds good. Okay. So I do want to start with you, though. I know a little bit about your background in terms of where you've been. I know you were in Virginia working with my now boss and one of the producers of the podcast, Tawny Hammond, yeah. and then Austin, and then Pima, Arizona, and now American Pets Alive, but that's that's about it. So tell me more about you. Tell me about your background. Yes, I'll give you the really quick version. So I worked in a shelter in Ohio in the late 1990s. And uh, I was a cruelty investigator and a dispatcher, and it was the most horrible job in the world. It's the most terrible job of my life. Every animal that I rescued from cruelty and neglect was brought back to the shelter and killed. I think the euthanasia rate was between 80 and 90%, but it was really crazy making work. I was like in my early 20s, I guess, and my first day of work, I had to euthanize a mom and puppies um, to prove that I was tough enough to work there. And that was the environment back then. Uh, it was just the opposite of what we're doing today. And so I kind of had a nervous breakdown. They killed my favorite dog. I ran away. I physically ran away from that job, like sprinted out of the building and never went back and swore I'd never do animal welfare again. And then I went on to go to college and graduate school at Ohio State, teach at Ohio State. I taught um, comparative studies, world religion, and a whole bunch of other things and had this totally different career. But through a series of unfortunate events, found myself at age 35, no, 33, teaching dinosaur camp to four-year-olds. Um, and making so little money that I was having to make peanut butter sandwiches. And I remember having to choose between like jelly and honey or something. I was broke. I had this like really bad job with this really mean boss. And Tawny, I met her. She was working at another park in the same system. And I interviewed for a job with her, which she did not hire me for. Um, but I ended up connecting with her and going and begging her for a job. And so she hired me. And uh, I that was that was how I got back into sheltering because she was working in a park. But a week after she gave me the job, she said, well, I'm actually going to go run the animal shelter. And so uh, that was history. I went back and um, started working with her as her assistant director there. And then um, we went to Austin together with Leanne. And and then I I went to Pima and, and ran Pima. So it's been about nine years of running shelters um, that all started from a very low moment in life. Oh, so you actually started then with Tawny as a parks employee. Like you, 
you you didn't come back. You didn't start working with Tawny intending to work in sheltering. Yeah. Oh, I never thought I'd go back into animal welfare. I only, you know, had it not been for Tawny. I remember when she told me she got the job, I was like, well, have fun with that. You're going to want to die as soon as you start working there. It's going to be so bad. And she she said, no, no, if you come and work for me, you'll get to save animals. You don't have to kill them anymore. And um, and that was really I didn't even know that was possible. And uh, and so she was she was true to her word. We saved a lot of animals in Fairfax. Um, I don't think we ever got to where we wanted to be, but uh, we did a lot of a lot of good work there. And uh, most I think I'm most proud we overturned the, the pit bull ban. So what year that was? 10 years ago? It's 2012, 2013. Yeah. Oh, so really not that long ago at all. I, I, you know, all of those places, uh, it's amazing progress. Now where you are with American Pets Alive, where you're, you're impacting communities across the country. I mean, that's incredible, Kristen. I mean, that's, you know, seven, eight years. Yeah. You know, I had a background that was really connected to this because I worked in human social services. I worked um, at a crisis center for teenagers um, who had found themselves homeless. And so I had worked in the human social services space and the connection to animal welfare is undeniable, um, struggling people with struggling animals. And so uh, it all just really connected. And I, um, I had also worked in the equine welfare space for two decades. Um, and so all of it came together in sheltering. And I, as soon as I found out I could actually start saving animals, it was, I was so passionate about it. Um, and, you know, it was in those early days, it was really Austin Pets Alive, Best Friends were the two organizations that were like, nope, you don't have to kill that. You don't have to kill that. And that back then was such a revelation because I came from a from a world where any animal over three years of age and any animal under four months of age was automatically euthanized. Like there was no question. And so just to have these national organizations saying like you could actually save that was so empowering and exciting. It's why I'm here today. Yeah. I mean, the progress is really amazing. And I think it can be easy for any of us, all of us to get bogged down in, in the day to day and feel stuck and uh, you know, that things are just really hard and they are, but still, you know, if we step back and, and we think about what, what's really been a short amount of time, I mean, it wasn't that long ago. If we think about things like the pit bull issue, like you mentioned earlier, there were lots of organizations. I would even say a majority that across the country didn't see them as adoptable. That's 10, 12 years ago. And like, how much has that changed? Yes, a ways to go, but huge change. So I think it's pretty heartening. And I, I think it is important for us to stop sometimes and remember remember the progress. I know, you know, I was thinking the other day, there was a very well-known shelter in Virginia when I when I was there in, in and this was in 2013, not that long ago. And the director was, was very renowned um, and really an overall great person. But she said this thing that they would never place a pit bull puppy. They would euthanize any pit bull puppy uh, because they didn't know how it was going to turn out as an adult. And they would sometimes place an adult pit bull if they knew how it had turned out, that it had actually turned out okay. And that was the kind of mythology and the kind of practices that permeated the movement around medium and large dogs, even just a few years ago. And I think that how far we've come in the space of pit bull dogs is so, um, it gives me so much hope because it was really just the, the way that they were talked about, like they were some entirely other species of animal that it's just crazy. So let's move to today and the future and the programs based on intake data, I think is a 
great topic to, to really frame up this whole issue of the role of shelters. Do you think we should start there? Yeah, I think we should start with the work that Best Friends is doing and that other like life-saving initiatives have been doing, because I think that's why I think that we're coming in at the moment to support and bolster this effort to get to no-kill 2025. I think that we're coming in now and, and what we're asserting is that we might get there, but we're not going to stay there unless we do more to address the other end. And I, and it's just be, I think the biggest lesson of 2020 to me is how little we've done to scrutinize uh, why animals are entering the system. And if we do that work, we can actually find solutions. But right now we're unable to find solutions to address the root causes of animals entering the system because we don't know why they're entering the system. And, and that is uh, just kind of ludicrous to think that we still don't know that. What an important word that is, I think, sustainability. We can get animals out, uh, you know, we can get them out the front door, but unless you're doing other things, you might be able to get to 90% in February and maybe March and April, but there becomes a point where, you know, it's not a viable model, right? It's not healthy for, for anyone. So I think the work you're doing now to really redefine the role of shelters and the relationship to the public, it's so key. Let's start with the current no questions asked method of intake. So I bring an animal into a shelter and I want to surrender my pet what happens? So the mythology around intake is that it's a place where irresponsible people come and say, I don't, I'm going on vacation. I don't want this animal anymore. Um, and that's what sort of people imagine it's like. Um, but actually, it's it's a lot more equivalent to a hospital ICU with family members waiting outside. It is one of the saddest places that you'll ever go into because it is people being separated from their families. Um, and the vast majority of those people who are bringing in animals who own them are do not want to be separated from their animal, but they have barriers to keeping them. Um, and those can range from uh, they have to go into the hospital and they have no one to take care of their animal or they're losing their home or the animal has a medical condition they can't afford to treat. Um, and then the other people in the intake lobby are good Samaritans who just want to help and they found a stray pet and they have been told that that's the best place for the animal. Now, the problem comes in that animal shelters were designed for to really function kind of like a factory line. And the beginning of that factory line is the intake um, department. And so the idea really, I've been running government shelters for eight years. And the idea in the government shelter is that it's actually faster just to take the animal in and to start moving it through the system and that it takes longer to try to talk to the person or have interaction or find out anything about why the animal is coming in. Um, and that leads to a process that kind of treats every animal the same. They're just going to come into the system and then the system is going to move them through the way it knows how. Um, and so in a lot of intake lobbies, people don't even ask. They only ask a couple of questions. And those are, is this your animal? And uh, are you surrendering for euthanasia or are you surrendering for placement consideration? And oftentimes that's the only thing that people ask. What was the what was the intake at Pima? Well, the intake at Pima was insane. Uh, they had it was the old building, and so people had to wait outside, which in the desert when it's often 110 plus degrees was really inhumane um, in itself. But there were no questions asked. Nobody had time. I mean, Pima was a shelter, so. Uh, if you don't know what a Pima is, uh, that's okay. It's in Tucson, Arizona, and it was a very large open admission shelter right on the U.S.-Mexico border. And what would happen is that 
the staff was just very busy and didn't really have time. And so they were just taking the animals in. Um, and there used to be a sign that that hung up that, that listed out what would disqualify animals from even being considered for live release. The sign listed everything that if the animal met this criteria, it was automatically going to be euthanized. And on the sign were things like any sign of upper respiratory illness now or in the future, um, any, uh, they, they said something like any uh, rambunctious behavior, um, these little tiny things that, uh, that they wouldn't even, they would just bring the animal in for euthanasia at that point. Um, and that changed a lot uh, under the director prior to my tenure. And I don't know really why they made that, except they didn't want to keep having the conversation with people. Um, because it, the shelter took in at that time when that sign was made 30,000 animals a year with probably two staff at any time to take them in. Um, so they just didn't have a lot of time for individual conversations. Um, now that sign was gone by the time I got there, thank goodness. Um, and a lot had been done, but intake was still what we call transactional. Basic information, take the animal in, start it through the system. So you and Dr. Ellen Jefferson did a, a great presentation on this topic and went into more detail about the, the categories of why someone is surrendering the, those subtypes. We'll have a link up on the website to that, bestfriends.org slash podcast. When I watched it, the word I think you used was transactional. And it is just that, right? No conversation at all. I come in the door. I want to give my pet up. I say that. I take the pet. Boom, we're done. And the trends for us industry-wide are really to relate better to the public. Be kind, listen, think the best of people at all times. You said, uh, I think 95%, so 95% of people who come in do not actually want to surrender. They just don't know there's another solution and the system hasn't told them there's another way. Yeah, you know, I've developed sort of an obsession with intake reason, um, which people are like, yeah, yeah. But it's really interesting when you start to look at the reasons for intake that get listed in shelter software systems. So you would think that the shelter would be listing viable reasons. Um, but actually, do you know what the we did? a So we took the data from 13 large open admission shelters and we looked at all the reasons for intake. And there were 250 in just those shelters. No consistency. But do you know what the biggest reason given for an animal coming in? Uh... Uh, let me think, let me think, let me think. Uh, I love trivia, so I, I want to nail this. <laughs> this is why I edit the podcast, because people don't want to just sit through me uh, of like four minutes <laughs> trying to come up with this answer. So, um, okay, I'm going to say owner requested euthanasia. So it was actually a category called general. Oh, come on. That's not even for this. Would it be his question? That's not a real question and answer. <laughs> so that was the number one followed by unknown, I believe. So this is the problem. These were the two main reasons animals are listed as coming in and neither of them mean anything. They mean that we're not asking people. And every time we do ask people, there are reasons. They're often complicated. It's often three or four reasons together that have led to a life crisis that, are, that is forcing someone to surrender. But the reason I say that I've become kind of obsessed with intake data is because once we start to know the real reasons, we can begin to find solutions. And the reasons are not always what we assume. So we assume, for instance, that if we can 
provide pet accessible housing for people that they will be more likely to keep their animal. This is true, but what we find when we really dig into the data is that behavior and housing are often tied together. So a rambunctious three-year-old dog needs more than housing that is technically accessible. That dog also needs behavioral support um, from the shelter. And these are things that we can do if we're not taking in as many animals. So what part of the project that I'm working on now is to figure out what are those reasons to come up with a standardized list that all shelters can use along with definitions for what they mean. Because if I tell you that 5,000 animals came in due to housing, I ask five different people what housing means or housing issues, they're gonna give me five different answers. And these are all real problems to trying to find solutions. So um, it's sort of painstaking, boring work, but it's laying the foundation to start finding real solutions. Um, to keep more animals with their families, our goal with this project is just to keep families intact and to say that, uh, American families, whether they're interspecies or human families, belong together. And darn it, if there's anything animal services can do to create healthier communities, it's to keep those families together. So the human interpretation, let's focus on that for a sec. I think it's part of why we include owner-requested euthanasia in our calculations at Best Friends. Quite frankly, because it's too damn easy just to put animals in that column. Because you're not taking the steps to evaluate and save animals that can be saved. And let's be honest, sometimes very intentionally, because it, you know, it makes the bottom line look better. So if we take out that possibility of what I say is black and you say is white, it means that we're able to get rid of the generals and the unknowns and get to a system where this thing means the same to me, to you, and, and to others. I think we have to know what we're talking about and language matters. And this is coming. I hope we get to talk a little bit about social and racial justice, because I think this is all very tied together. But if we don't know what we're saying and we don't have shared meanings around terms um, and a great example of this would be something like actually just behavior dog. We all say behavior dogs. We don't know what we mean by that. Um, and we need to have a shared language and shared understanding about that. Uh, in order to even have a conversation that's meaningful, much less to collect and utilize data to solve problems. And so on the outcome end, we've done that really well. When we explain, when, when I say live release to you, you know what that means, an animal left alive. We haven't done that on the intake side. And so um, that's what this project aims to do. And in terms of adoptability, I think we need to start calling adoptability for what it is, and it's a judgment on the part of any particular organization, and it is always subjective, and it is never based in science, um, unless an animal is truly medically suffering and can't be treated. Um, and we're all making our best guesses. I spent eight and a half years running shelters where I know very, very little about animal behavior, but I was making my best guess about the future risk of adopting any animal. And that's what we're all doing. So um, I think we need to just get clear that we are not, there's so much we're not experts on and, and we're learning so much about our movement and the animals that we're helping. I want to state unequivocally that none of this, these types of conversations are ever based in judgments of what happened yesterday, the decisions that were made, why or why not, or, you know, listen, what those decisions yesterday, forget, forget it. We're going to move forward. So let's stop, breathe, think the best of each other and move forward. Listen, thank God, Kristen, that I have never had to sit in the lobby of a shelter and make those decisions. 
or be in the back and make those life or death decisions. Thank God I couldn't do it. So I don't ever want people to feel guilty for anything, any decision they've ever had to make. We're all working on this together. It's hard. We're all here now. So how can we work together to, to push this forward uh, to, you know, to a better future? Yeah, I love that you said that because I have surrendered several animals to shelters. I surrendered a dog. I wrote a blog about this at one point, a dog of mine who was really beloved and he was taken to the shelter and um, and killed uh, an hour after he arrived. And so, you know, I come at this from the perspective of knowing that I still agonize over that. I still have a lot of pain around it. And so I, I, I'm glad you brought that up because there's something really important that we need to start changing now, no matter who we are, no matter how many animals we save or don't save. We need to start treating the people that bring in animals, animals more humanely. And so one of the things that we did at my last shelter is when someone would surrender an animal, we would let them write about what they loved about their pet. And then we would put that on the animal's kennel. And at the very bottom of that, there was a checkbox. And that was for the person surrendering to say, I would love to be contacted by the new owner and I would love to stay in touch and know how this animal is doing. I think the fact that when people surrender, they lose all contact with that animal and can never know how it's doing is just unkind. Um, And it's totally unnecessary. We should be offering that option to every adopter and um, every surrender and not everyone's going to take it. But what peace of mind would so many of us who've had to surrender animals know if we knew they ended up somewhere good after they left our lives? And we just those little things, anyone can do them starting tomorrow. They're not hard and they just create a little bit kinder world for people and animals. Well, you say that anyone can do this tomorrow, but there are people who will be listening to this and say, yeah, great. Okay. I want to do it, but I don't have the support. I I don't have the supervisor or director or police chief or health department director, commissioner, whatever. I don't have the support of them and they're really interested in me doing stuff. So now what? Yeah. So I think that there's, there are a few things and it kind of depends on the problem, but I teach a lot of um, coordinator level people through the Maddie's foster apprenticeships that we do. And we hear this all the time that they don't have support from leadership. So we do have a great document called how to pilot a program, which is exactly intended for this reason. But also I think that it's, it's why it's so important that those of us doing these things are sharing and getting the word out because the best way to convince others to do something is when lots of other people are doing it and it's working. And so what we tell everybody is if you are doing these things, be spreading the word, be doing news releases and social media, because those little tiny shelters where there's not a lot of will to change, they need your examples to show their leadership why these things work. Ahead of jumping on with you, one thing I, I was thinking about that seems to be a relatively low barrier, I think, uh, to make some changes is really just putting the right people in the right job. For example, I know nothing about dogs. <laughs> I know basically nothing about dogs and dog behavior. It's just not my thing. So, you know, maybe a dog caregiver isn't the place for me, but I can talk and I feel that I could be helpful to pet owners. So maybe I am at the desk in the lobby. So just a little bit of staff management. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Okay, so on the change management thread, why do you think it's taken us this long? Like what has been the holdup to what really, when you think about it, are pretty common sense 
policies and procedures? Um, yeah, so that's really what the Haas Project's aiming to solve because as soon as we talk to people about all these great things they can be doing, they tell us about the barriers they face. Um, they generally face externally imposed barriers like ordinances, laws, government leadership that is not supportive, or they face internally imposed barriers. And those are things like their own leadership, their colleagues, their internal policies. And the, finally, the last real barrier that I think is maybe the biggest is just a lack of resources. People are so busy. I worked in a relatively well-resourced shelter. Our budget was about $11 million for about 20,000 animals. And yet we were scrambling every single day just to get animals moved through the system. Um, and we were much better off than so many others. So I think those three things are all need different approaches. Um, in terms of resources, we are getting it wrong when it comes to volunteer programs. Animal welfare is failing. We have all the information we need to know that volunteers can absolutely change the world. They can be part of any program we have, and we are not utilizing them to their fullest extent. And when you talk to people in animal shelters, they'll say, well, we have 500 volunteers. But when you ask how many of those are people that come six hours a month, which is the number we use to consider someone a regular volunteer, the number goes down to things like 10 and 15. I mean, really dramatic differences. And so we don't have, we're not utilizing volunteers the way we should be. And we're also putting restrictions on them that make it hard for them to help. And I, I want to share an example about something that I think is really world changing. So at PAC, we had volunteer programs for everything. We have a volunteer program where the volunteers, if people struggle with behavioral issues, we have an entire volunteer group dedicated to helping those dogs. They come back to the shelter and work with our volunteers. We have volunteer programs for old cats, for old dogs, um, everything. But the one that started about a year ago is a program that's specifically dedicated to bonded pairs. And I used to be of the mindset, you know what, they're coming in, we're getting them out alive, too bad if they get broken up. And then I started to see that cats were dying because their lifelong companion was taken away from them. They just stopped eating and died. Um, dogs would have actual mental breakdowns from being separated from the dog they've lived with their whole lives. I mean, it's really brutal what happens when you separate animals that love each other. And so this group just started up and I fought with them for two years. I said, no way, there's no way it's gonna take forever. And they started and they piloted this program and they showed that they could actually decrease length of stay um, for animals by adopting them together, including big dogs, which we didn't think was possible. They have countless stories of animals that didn't have to be separated because of this group. And I think that's the power of volunteers. They see, they see the animals, they anthropomorphize in the best way. And they see the, the pain that's caused when an old dog with rotten teeth doesn't get soft food, et cetera. So I think we need to do a lot better job harnessing their power, letting them do the work they need to do and get out of their way. They want to help. And yes, they're going to have opinions and that's okay. It's our job as leaders and shelters to listen to those and to try to do better. So on the lack of standardization, my wife works in municipal government for the water resource recovery facility. Most people uh, are going to know that better as wastewater. And their world, right, across all municipal governments, what happens, the terms they use, the testing, the procedures are essentially the same as what happens in a wastewater plant in L.A. or Austin or New York or, you know, small town USA, I think in part because they've you know, they have government oversight and there's regulation in that. 
that's brought about standards. But I think a lot of it has been driven within the industry. It makes me wonder why, how, and why we haven't done uh, this better. Why do you think that is? Well, you know, we've never had, I, I'm not sure. I have a couple of theories. One is that we've never had an academic, so I would compare this more closely probably to social work, and we've never had a national academic curriculum around animal sheltering that brings us into alignment on some critical pieces. That kind of national curriculum gives governmental organizations the tools they need to standardize. And so we, ha we have really lacked that, and that has been a problem. And I also think that we have often been in such reactive mode because lives and deaths are at stake that we haven't focused enough time and attention on the proactive piece, which is actually solving the, the, um, solving the problems that lead animals to coming into the system. And we haven't really thought about how to change community behavior. So I'll give you one quick example that's sort of from another government service, which is recycling. I just lived in a town where I had one trash can and I just stopped recycling. I just threw everything in my trash can. And I'm a, I'm a nature geek, um, environment lover. And I was like doing this terrible thing. I came here to Austin and I, now I have two recycling bins, this tiny trash can that barely fits anything and a compost bin. And within two weeks, I have almost no trash. I'm recycling the heck out of everything and, and composting. And that was a behavior change that was brought on by really the government. It's a public-private partnership saying, how do we modify people's behavior? We need to do the same thing in animal welfare. So we need to start saying, how do we incentivize people that find stray pets to hold them for 48 hours and, and help get them home? Instead of that, we're still telling everybody, bring it to the shelter. It's the equivalent of still just giving everybody the one trash can. Um, and so these are the kind of, we need to take the best of design thinking and all of the technology that exists today. And we really need to start rethinking this. And I think the biggest barrier is that we're always in crisis. We just don't have the time. Uh, we're all under-resourced. And so get, I think COVID gave us the silver lining of just not being in, in crisis in terms of the numbers and having some time to, to tackle the bigger problems. And now that we're going down that road, we're actually now talking about how do we create a system so that uh, euthanizing for space isn't a reality anymore. It's just not something we have to think about. Now, that's interesting. You know, with recycling, you didn't get a choice, right? I mean, you had the bins and you were given the options and you were composting because it was easy to do. So if we're talking about creating standards and the input options into the shelter management software include general or unknown then people are going to use them. This is not a criticism of any of the software platforms or companies uh, out there today, but you know maybe that's a, a way that we can force this through if we can get all of those platforms using the same categories, subtypes. Is that a viable route? And you know, is that something you've been working on? Yeah, exactly. Shelter software is key. I think that it has been the limiting factor to our imagination of what's possible and it has been defined solely by intakes and outcomes and we we are the shelter software the folks working in the main shelter software companies right now are so inspired and enthusiastic and supportive and supportive of working together and they get it 
And then on top of that, you've got all these other technology innovations coming into this space that are saying we can help with this, we can make this better. And so you're seeing Shelter Love develop pre-intake management tools to, to help animals in the community and pet health coming right behind and doing the same thing. And all of them saying we need to standardize the reasons for intake and we need to define them. And we they are all at the point, and by all, I mean a number of the big, bigger companies are at the point of coming to some consensus on what that list looks like and how we standardize definitions. And I think that's just going to be to the benefit of everyone across the board. Um, but now we have this moment where it feels like everybody's working together. We're not having the same old fights. We are like really thinking about solutions. And if we can do that, if we can really standardize that intake data, then what that will allow us to do is start to imagine a completely different world because then we get out of intake being the first point of contact. And the first point of contact is anytime somebody calls us up and has a question or anytime we get a call from a social service agency saying, Mr. Roberts is going into the hospital and we need a boarding voucher for two weeks for him. Um, those are the services we start to provide. And so the shelter does just as much as ever. We're never going to not be busy, but we're not doing it all by institutionalizing animals. And so that's the move that needs to happen. So institutionalization is reserved for only the animals that truly need it. And the other animals and people can all be served in the community and in their homes. I'm going to push back here a bit. I hate the term devil's advocate, but there will be people who say, this is wrong. A shelter is a shelter. We shouldn't be doing more to keep animals out. All we're doing is subverting the whole reason for existence and you're going to go too far here and to let's use the same example from earlier recycling the recycling bin is full and the trash can keeps getting smaller and smaller and smaller and now i'm getting really pissed off because the trash is piling up in the street do you know what i mean is i don't know if that makes sense is there acknowledgement of that that you know this concern that you are taking away uh, a reason for existence right i mean i think that's where we went wrong with managed intake I think managed intake became a way to say, nope, we're not helping. And not for everybody. Some, uh, I think the shelters that I worked in and many others handled managed intake beautifully. But when you just shut your doors and say, we're not going to help this animal, that's not acceptable. And we won't be successful until the public at large feels as satisfied with the services we're providing as they do with just bringing animals to the shelter. And so Sure, not everyone is always going to feel good about this, just like not everyone will will feel good about cats living in the community. But when we look at the general feeling of the public, yeah, this is a huge project. We're trying to change community culture and national culture around how animals are handled. But people's satisfaction is not what we need to harness and where animal welfare has fallen down is people want to help. We need to give them other ways to help than just dropping an animal off at the shelter and they'll take it. And if they don't and they say, forget it, no way, we're here. Our doors are open to take those animals that really need us. Um, but if you want to help, we're going to let you. COVID, managed intake, so many communities all of a sudden in a position of doing that, whether they wanted to or not. Mm -hmm. But that program, a very good one, if done poorly, like anything else, is bad. And I do worry that in so many communities where there's little appetite for any change, it can often be a one-shot deal. And you've got skeptics. People have skeptics in their own chain of command. That director of the health department doesn't want to do any of this. 
but they've got an opportunity. We got a shot here, right? Yeah. So how can we make sure that we're not blowing these opportunities? Oh, so when I think about what communities are going to do moving forward, I think a lot about the work we did with Foster back six, seven years ago. And at the time, we started fostering out dogs that were at risk of euthanasia due to behavioral reasons, mostly decline in the shelter. And at the time, a lot of the questions you're asking me today were the same questions. What about the risk? Uh, what about, you know, what, you're asking people too much. So many of the same questions came up. And we acknowledged those things. And we also stayed the course. And what our job then was and what it is now is to expand people's understanding of what is possible. So we know that not every community is going to start providing supported self-rehoming or asking people to do be finder to fosters. We know that, but we know that if we can expand what's possible in people's brains, that over time we'll begin to see these programs grow. And the reason we'll see them grow or this way of operating, we'll see it grow. And the reason for that is that it's, it fiscally makes more sense. It's a more responsible use of tax dollars. It engages more people and it really is the most inclusive way we can move forward. This movement has historically, um, I know I said I wanted to talk about social and racial justice, and um, this is where it ties, one of the many places it ties in. This movement has historically been incredibly and openly discriminatory against uh, large swaths of our population. And that that we can't move forward that way because that because we just we end up creating a system that is endless um, and will continue to put animals in an institution and rehome them. But I don't think that's why any of us are here. And I don't think that's the goal. And so if we're going to solve this, we've got to we've got to start engaging more people more more fundamentally. And so one way to do that is happening in Canada. Imagine that you are in your neighborhood and you find a stray dog. But you know that someone in your neighborhood is the neighborhood captain and they have a little sign in their window that says, I can help or found a stray, I can help. And you just have to go knock on their door and say, can you help me get this dog home? These are ways that we can work within communities now, empowering people who want to help. That person with the sign in their window is someone that wants to help. The shelter can still play a supportive role, but not take in animals. And, um, and so that builds relationships with our, your communities. Um, it builds better partnerships. And it's a way that the entire community then takes responsibility for the health and well-being of animals. And um, just going back to that's the will of people in neighborhoods everywhere. It does the demographic of any particular neighborhood. It doesn't matter what it is. People want to help and we need to give them more ways to help. That's Canada, eh? Everyone's much nicer, eh? Uh, sorry, sorry, Canada, that's really bad. But yeah, truly knowing our neighbors, it's a challenge in uh, you know, much of America. It's, it's almost like a lost art or something. Kenny Lamberti with Best Friends heads up our action teamwork, which yeah, it's essentially doing that kind of thing. He was on the podcast episode 36, I think. Uh, a good listen if you want more on this topic. And I'll tell you, we found a, a dog loose uh, in our neighborhood a couple of weeks ago. No idea whose it was. Uh, so I'm out here, you know, bring the dog into our uh, sunroom, taking photos, posting online. You know, I believed she came from somewhere close, yeah. but I didn't know. Turns out it was the next door neighbor's dog. We knew that dog. We just hadn't seen her in so long. She'd gone gray in the muzzle and just didn't recognize her. 
But the true issue there is that we really just didn't know our neighbors very well. And I should probably be quiet here because my office window is right over their driveway. But, you know, the answer of whose dog is this would have been very quickly answered if we just had better relationships. But you posted the dog online. What's that? You posted the dog online. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Paw Boost, the countywide you know, lost pet Facebook group next door. And we're obviously happy to do whatever we we need, whatever the dog needs. But, you know, do we fit into the norm of people who find a pet? I think you do. I think you do fit into the normal spectrum. That's the thing. I think most people can do that. And it takes such a short time to get animals home. You know, it's usually a couple of hours where I found a dog. My dogs are not friendly. I found a dog a couple of months ago. And put a leash on him. He's an older guy, tied him to my porch, put a bed down, put some water down and, uh, you know, kind of stood out front and sure enough, somebody drove by looking for their dog. And I was like, here's your dog. And I think perfectly on cue. There go your dogs. <laughs> I think that's all we have to do. So, uh, yeah, it's a, but, but, but listen, not everybody's going to want to help. Not everybody's going to be into this and not everybody loves animals and that's okay too. Shelters aren't going anywhere. Uh, it's just that the shelter doesn't have to institutionalize every animal. The shelter can help in a lot more ways than we've ever imagined. And that's what the Haas Project is about, is saying, you don't have resources, you face barriers, you don't have time. We know all that, but there are still things you can do now to empower more people in your community, to help, to build partnerships that will help you, um, and to leverage those, those resources you do have. And we know anecdotally and through shelter by shelter um, data that this is fundamentally reducing intake. Um, at PAC, my last shelter, we had a call center that we started um, under the previous director in 2017. And by the time I left, the call center was getting four to 8,000 calls a month. And um, in 2019, the last kind of normal year, we were able to track more than 5,000 animals kept out of the shelter because of that call center. Um, and that was all funded through grants. No operational funding went to that program, but 5,000 animals didn't come in because of this, this call center. So we know these programs work and they're doable. And so the goal of Haas is to make them doable for as many shelters as possible, as many communities as possible. And um, we're about to have Detroit be the first community under Haas that um, that is going to be in an entirely Haas community with uh, with both Detroit Animal Care um, as well as Michigan Humane participating in the in the Haas program. So we're so excited about that because Detroit's been one of those cities that just breaks my heart uh, with the struggles that they face, uh, often struggling just to buy food for the animals in the in the uh, municipal shelter. So um, we're excited to help organizations like that that truly still need it. So let's get into social justice and equity. As you said, all of this is so closely aligned overall the way we are as communities, as people, how we relate to each other. Can you help me understand how you see this relationship and maybe give me some examples of communities that you see that are doing well in this regard? Yeah. So I I went to an animal welfare conference, I think in 2014, and heard one of the main presentations was a person talking about animal welfare history. And in it, there were so many racist depictions um, that I was just totally shocked. I couldn't believe somebody was saying these things out loud. Members of the audience were asking incredibly offensive questions um, to the speaker who was giving relatively offensive answers back. And this all really shocked me. I, I had no idea that um, that 
really that this sort of level of what I saw as openly racist conversations could happen in, in public. I, um, it came from the university and um, human social services background. So um, this was my introduction back into what was happening in animal welfare. And then seeing it on the ground, um, much of what we do in shelters is built on discriminatory discriminatory practices. So do not adopt lists of people that um, we don't think are adequate homes, uh, background checks, the way we speak to people, um, the way that we virtually chase people out of the shelter when we don't think they're adequate or we don't like um, how they have talked, etc. It goes on and on. And then the way we pe treat people who do have to surrender their animals. Uh, so all of this adds up to a system that doesn't treat people very kindly. And that's a lot of the reason so many animals have died in shelters is because we won't let people help save them. And so diversity, equity, and inclusion is important in its own right, but we have a real problem we need to come to terms with in animal welfare um, from, from the top down, from our boards to our leadership teams, to the people working in the shelter, to our hiring practices, the list goes on and on. And, it, and what, what I think the bottom line of it all is, is that we can do better and we have to invest in doing better because everyone loves animals and everyone deserves the love of an animal and everyone deserves to be treated uh, with dignity and respect and kindness, um, regardless of whether they work for us or they're a customer or a client. And, and so a big part of the Haas project is really realizing that and it has been the hardest part of the project. Um, I will say that just hearing from our colleagues who are people of color, just hearing from our colleagues that have suffered discriminatory practices, it is, um, it's, you know, there's a lot of coming to terms we have to do um, in this field. And I think we're just beginning that process. Um, we are tied up in larger structures of power that are also um, built on structural inequality. So this is not going to be easy, but uh, it's really it's really been, I think that we're all undergoing a learning process and I'm really excited about that. I mean, we're just, we're learning as a movement how to even talk about these things. One of the things we just put out is the DEI glossary from the Haas project and it's just defining terms that people should use in animal welfare um, and that are about diversity, equity and inclusion. And just to give people some starting points, but we're all babies in this conversation. And I think right now, especially as white people, uh, what we need to be doing is learning, reading, educating ourselves and and even more important, listening and making space for voices of people who've been discriminated against. And um, I know I'm not supposed to plug best friends, but oh, my gosh, the organizations there are several organizations that have really made room for that. And um, I think the, the world of animal welfare is watching um, and, uh, and is watching to see what we're all gonna do next. And we have to keep a laser focus uh, on these discriminatory practices and on making animal welfare more inclusive. So taking a pet away from someone, I have friends, and this just actually came up uh, two or three weeks ago. Uh, when when something kind of popped up online here. And there are people who, I mean, listen, I would consider them to be empathetic. They are certainly outwardly passionate about social justice issues. But when it comes to, you know, quote unquote, poor people with pets, who boy, I mean, they're the they're first in line to say that that pet should be somewhere anywhere else, right? It's so frustrating 
And I don't think it's real like malintent. It's just that bias. But the fact that, you know, that you and I are even having these conversations, I do think it says a lot about the, you know, there's potential for us to get this right. I, I watched, so we did a lot of work with people experiencing homelessness and their pets. And I, those pets sometimes broke my heart. When it was 110 degrees out, when I knew they were cold and asleep by the side of a highway. But we've got to start caring about the people on the other end of those pets. Like animal welfare, if we are going to earnestly say we care about the welfare of animals owned by people facing poverty and homelessness, we have to care about the people. And we can't, taking away the pets from the people isn't the solution. The solution is animal welfare has to form better connections and partnerships with human services agencies so that we can better help animals and people together. And I I think that's the only way we move forward uh, because it is not... Um, it is a just such an injustice to imagine that we take people's animals away when people are choosing to live in their cars and not a shelter because they want to keep their animal and people are choosing to live on the streets, not a shelter because they want to keep their animal. We need to create shelters that serve animals and people. And so that's where I think the shift we have has to completely change um, over the next decade to, to really think about the that how do we just act as the supporters of that bond? That's a good segue into Haas. Give me a scenario. You're designing this new structure, social services, sheltering. Give me an example of how this plays out beginning to end for the person and the pet that needs help. Okay. So really simply, if Right now, there's a pie of government animal services. 90% of that pie is uh, institutionalizing. It's intake, care, and placement. And 10% of that pie is other stuff. And so what Haas does is it really changes how the pie is sorted out. And so 10 to 20% then becomes institutionalization and 80% um, to 90% becomes all the other things we do. So I'll give you a case that um, actually happened which was a gentleman who was non-English speaking and he brought his dog in to surrender it because he, uh, his landlord said the dog had to go. So the dog came to us. It only came onto my radar because it had stranger danger and was very afraid of new people to the point that he really wasn't safe. Um, and so he came to me for euthanasia sign off. Um, I luckily had an employee who said this dog lived with kids lived with other dogs has been fine and it sounds like the dog was getting off the property and barking at strangers and that's why he got kicked off so we called the man um, we had one of our spanish-speaking employees call the owner who and we said if we found you alternative housing would you take your dog back and he said absolutely well we came to find out that he was only paying something like 375 dollars a month for housing which is darn near impossible to match um, but we told him we were going to try to save his dog and try to get it back to him. And from that day on, it took us about a month from that day on every single day, he had two jobs and he would come between his jobs and he would come to meet to see his dog. And so we started to have one of our volunteers work with him on some training for his dog, who was, um, you know, a young exuberant dog. And every day he came and worked with us and saw his dog. And, uh, and so we found out that moving him wasn't an option. And so we called his landlord uh, and 
the landlord explained why he had asked the dog to leave. And we advocated on behalf of the tenant and said, what could we do? And he said, well, the fence needs to be fixed and he needs to be kept in the house when, when the owner's not home. And so we came out, we fixed the fence. Um, we got him the training he needed and his dog went home with him. And that was you know, it, it only was hard because our system isn't set up for it. So we had to board the dog for a month. That was not ideal. Um, but otherwise, if we had had a few more things in place, it would have been a no brainer for us. The dog probably wouldn't have even come in. We just would have gone out and fixed his fence and gotten him some training. And so that's a good example of how that kind of situation leads us to say, this happens a lot. This connection between housing and behavior happens a lot. How can we start to address these two things simultaneously? And so Haas is building programs for people like this gentleman. Um, and we're also building programs for the people that can't keep their animals. So unfortunately, some people are going to be like him, but they really are going to have to give up their animal. For those folks, Haas is building a whole series of supportive services for people to empower them to rehome their own animal. And there are software options that help make this easier. But outside of those, there's so much the shelter can do. Self-rehoming is so much better because it keeps the existing owner connected to the new owner and it builds a safety net under the animal long term. Someday that previous owner might be able to take the pet back if it's in need. And it can, that owner can certainly help and offer support and advice to the new owner. And so these are just a couple of the ways that Haas is saying, look at all these things we can do. Look at all the ways this is more humane. It's more cost effective. And it's not that we want to cut budgets of municipal shelters. That's the last thing that should happen. We need to reallocate that money we're spending on food and cleaning up poop of animals living in kennels. Take that money and actually spend it on keeping those animals in their homes. Money alone. I mean, budgets are crunching everywhere. So I feel like anytime you can say, let's combine efforts and stop doing twice the work for twice the money. I mean, that's a very compelling reason to work on this. I, I almost feel like maybe there's parallels with COVID and managed intake where, you know, this is forcing the hand. Maybe we don't want to do this or maybe we're not quite ready for it, but it doesn't matter. Like we really need to do this. We have to do it. Yeah. I, you know, I've had to manage municipal budgets and I am Really glad I am not a government animal shelter director right now because budget cuts in 22 are going to be really scary. Shelters can't afford not to do human animal support services right now because they need to decrease the number of animals coming into their system. And so um, I think these programs are going to become essential, unfortunately, much faster than they might have otherwise, because shelters have got to find ways to keep 3,000 animals in the community. Um, and that is not to say that we're that shelters aren't going to be taking the ones that need to come in, but they're going to need to get that group of animals that really never needed to be sheltered in the first place. They're going to need to take those off their plate so they can continue to save the lives of the animals that are still going to come into the system. Okay. So give me some things, two, three, five things that an organization can do right now? Um, so you can go to the Human Animal Support Services website. Um, that's humananimalsupportservices.org. That will give you all the basics. Um, in early February, we are releasing the toolkits that tell shelters how to get started, no matter what. And every single one of the programs, there's uh, there are 12 Haas elements and every single one you can do just with volunteers and you don't need resources or money to do them. Um, of course, 
increasing um, your investment increases the return on investment, but they're all things that any virtually any organization can start now. Uh, so that is one thing you can do. Another thing is just to join. We have a lot of learning opportunities happening every Monday morning. Uh, Maddie's fun hosts a call where we're just bringing people like you on to talk about what you're doing. And we're talking about all the innovation that's help, happening in shelters, real world examples from people who are doing the actual work. And we're just learning from them. And that's been a really nice opportunity for shelter staff at all levels. Um, and all of this can be found on the Human Animal Support Services website. Um, and then I would say the third thing that every organization needs to do now because of these budget crunches is to say, why are we doing things the way we're doing them? Um, it's a question we don't like to ask because it leads you down hard roads of change. But if you are an organization that has a purely transactional process for intake, or you're an organization that only sends kittens and puppies to foster and doesn't make other animals eligible, ask yourselves why, and then look at the examples of organizations that are sending thousands of animals to foster a year, that are keeping tons of animals out through support services. There are so many successful examples. There's one shelter... Um, Shenandoah Valley, that always comes to mind because their budget, I think they had a 3,000 intake. Where in the world is Shenandoah Valley? <laughs> Shenandoah, Virginia. And they have a 3,000 animal intake. And the previous director, this is a couple of years ago, she was saving 98% of the animals with a budget of about $200,000 with 3,000 animals coming in. And she was every day just asking, like, why are we doing this? What can we do better? And it was amazing to see just by building that culture of constant change and improvement, how much things were, how, how much she was able to accomplish. And she was able to keep that organization no kill for several years that she was there um, and is now working, now leading another organization. But um, these are the kind of things that I think we're just not used to in animal welfare. We're used to having a process. We do the process and we are not victims to a system that we built. We built it. We can take it apart. We need to start taking it apart, all of us collectively. Um, and it's going to be messy and things will go right. They'll go wrong. But it is long past due to just make these incremental changes. It's time for big, sweeping assessments of why we're doing what we're doing and to ask our communities for help. Um, the thing I want to leave everyone with is ask for more, your community will be there every single time you ask for their help. We're None of us are even asking for 10% of what we should be. Um, you should have 10 times the volunteers, 10 times the fosters. And every person that comes to you, ask them if they're willing to be part of the solution. And about half the time, even as you're getting started, about half the time, they'll say yes. You mentioned the Maddie's call. It is important to me that we recognize that any change is difficult, but you are not alone. So whether it's the Maddie's call, the Best Friends Network partners, you know, we have Facebook groups, no one should ever feel alone because whatever you need, there are people in this movement, peers who will help you. And if you don't have that support system and you need it, email me, podcast at bestfriends.org, and I will get you hooked up. We'll get you connected to peers who need you in many ways as much as you might need them. If you're in a community and you don't know the other groups, the other organizations, fix it. Even once a quarter, formalize it. Maybe begin to actually build a coalition. No one should ever be doing this alone. So if you feel alone, 
reach out and let's figure out how to make you not feel that way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really important. And I, you know, the Haas Project, Human Animal Support Services is not another national organization. It's just a collective of, of people and organizations. And there are about 40 pilot shelters that are trying all these programs and want to help you. There's probably one in your area. So please check out the map. Um, and it's really, thing, it's on the backs of these shelters. It is all the work they're doing that is making Haas. So Haas is really about, my job is elevating what they're doing getting the word out and helping other organizations. Um, and the working groups are people from best friends, from all other national organizations, from um, shelters all over the country, just coming together to say like, how do we make things better? And we're working really closely with all of our national organization partners. I think the lesson of 2020 for all of us is that we're all in this together and we're not getting out of it unless we work together. And uh, and that's really the commitment that we've made as we go forward. So we're just so excited and um, you know so excited to work with best friends and to work towards that goal because ultimately our goal is to save every animal, to give every animal a chance at a live outcome. And I think that the only way that that we think we get there and the best way we think we can help achieve that goal at this point is, is through the human animal support services programs. I totally agree. You are on my short list of people who I always have to make sure I spend time with at the conference. We've had some cracking conversations and not having the conference uh, <laughs> and being able to have those types of conversations with you and other colleagues it's really left a hole, yeah. I think, in my professional life. I mean, a real loss of that camaraderie. And while it's not the same, the Zoom calls have really changed things for me, I think, during COVID. And no matter what comes next, I hope we can figure out a way to keep the Zoom calls. Not not all of them, <laughs> but the, the right ones for the right reasons, done the right way. So, you know, nobody's wasting any time. At times, I kind of almost feel like the gas is running out of the tank on some of this uh, COVID-style communication that we put together, but I do hope we can find a way to, to keep them going. Me too. I don't think that's, I don't think it's going anywhere. I don't think it can. You know, when we go to a conference, it's like, it's almost like starting over when it comes to collaboration. But I feel like now going to conferences, it's going to be like, we've all been doing the homework. Now let's come and like really have some really incredible movement and conversation. So I can't wait to see what in-person conferences look like once they start up again. I think it's going to feel really different. Kristen, real talk. I'm a huge fan. Your knowledge, your passion, the way you share and give so much of yourself, you know, hearing that story of you getting back into the movement back in Virginia with Tawny, what a what a stroke of luck really for all of us and the animals because, you know, we're all better off because of it. So, truly, thank you for being you. Thank you so much, John. Thanks for having me. The producers Tawny Hammond, Amy Charlton, Bethany Hines and Mark Peralta My name is John Dunn, and this is the Best Friends Podcast.